Welcome to another edition of Vinyl Ventures with John and Jay. And today is a little bit different than some of our other shows. Just a little. Today, we have the utmost pleasure of having Rudy Sarzo as a guest. Now, a lot of you may be wondering, why the hell Rudy is on our show? Well, Rudy uh, ended up being an unbelievably gracious person with his time. I, on a whim, sent him a message, and he got back to me immediately, and he had no hesitation about being a guest on Vinyl Ventures. Yeah, and he spent over two hours with us. It's, it's hard for me to believe now, after we've done recording, after we've gotten done recording it, as it was before it happened. Yes. Um, it, it's an amazing talk. We, we cover a lot of ground, but also a lot of that ground is stuff that hasn't been covered before. So it's not just talking about Ozzy, Randy Rhodes, Quiet Riot. There's a lot of different stuff in here. Um, he talks about you know, a lot of the, uh, early influences in his life that, you know, led him to being, you know, one of the legendary musicians in rock and roll over the last 45 years. It's, it's a great show. You're going to love it. So without further ado, here is our discussion with the legendary Rudy Sarzo. I guess a, a great jumping off point would be like, what got you interested in music? Uh, when you were growing up, were your parents musicians? Um, no, no, not really. But there was always music around the house, you know, uh, coming in a uh, Latin culture. We really didn't listen to the news a lot. We just listened to the radio music on the radio entertainment. Right. Because we're, you know, I don't know. Sometimes in certain Latin countries, no, ma- no matter what the news is, whatever happens is going to happen. Right. Right. So That's let's. True. Let's let's dance and drink. <laughs> you know, let's listen to music. I it's you know I it's it's very sad and it's very you know uh, but 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 it's the truth. You were talking about growing up, radio was a big thing. Obviously, mm-hmm. did you guys in the house? Did you guys have a record player? Yeah, we did. Yeah, <laughs> we did. It was one of the first things that my 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 dad bought in uh, uh uh on credit uh because see we were refugees mm-hmm. we, we were not immigrants when you're an immigrant you basically you're you're migrating from one, one place to the other right yep and in your own country you have certain certain fundamental rights such as you can give your furniture, your belongings to your relatives. You can actually leave without feeling that the government is going to apprehend you, put you in jail because you're defecting the revolution. You know, so there's just a lot of undercover things that my, my, you know, of the night that my parents had to do in order to keep uh, them from getting uh, arrested. Right. And and uh, which happened to a lot of people that tried to leave Cuba at that time, because, first of all, we had to get a visa, well, a passport, a visa, get somebody to claim us from the United States and then uh, get the tickets and and so on. So it took my parents about a year, year and a half to get everything under, you know, kind of like quietly, you know, 
And uh, we left right between Bay of Pigs. Uh, we were in Cuba during the Bay of Pigs. And then the missile crisis happened after we arrived in, in Miami. And uh, so being a refugee, you leave everything behind. Everything, everything. There's no turning back. There's not like coming to the United States and giving it, giving it like a few months. Eh, it's not working out. I'm going to go back to my country. And there's no going no, back. Do that. You're all no, in. Not only that, we lost our your our status, our citizenship. I was stateless when I first went on tour with Ozzy before I became an American citizen. I had a re-entry permit in 1981. So when I landed in Hamburg on on the uh, on the uh, European leg of Ozzy Osbourne tour in 1981, I. I didn't have a passport. So I had this re-entry permit, which is basically a sheet saying, yeah, Rudy can go back to the United States, <laughs> basically, you know. <laughs> did that, I mean, did that complicate anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I had guys with machine guns, you know, pointing at me at the uh, uh, at customs. Uh, it, it, it got ugly. And it, I got, it got scary because I thought, you know, I'm stateless. They can send me back to Cuba. I don't have a passport. Oh, now. yeah. You know. And this is 1981, right in the midst of the uh, uh, of the uh, plane hijackings that mm -hmm. were going on. Oh gosh, yeah, Europe, there was a know. lot of stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I said, you know what? As soon as I return to the United States, I'm going to get my citizenship and uh, and get my passport and you know be legal, basically, because I I, I had no no country. I was stateless. You know, That's... which is the Cuban government did that. So, you know, being a refugee is, is way different experience than yeah. than just basically being an immigrant. No, we don't. Yeah. I mean, I can honestly say that I don't think most American citizens know how much gravitas it it holds to be an American citizen. Oh, yeah. You know? absolutely. And I think it's taken for granted big time by most people. Coming from a communist country, a lot of things are taken for granted here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I can, I can, you know, it's not a political statement. It's just, it's the fact, you know. But uh, going back to the uh, my 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 parents buying a TV and buying a record player, uh, of course we didn't have any records. So what do we do? We joined the Columbia House. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what the first Columbia House record was. Uh, we had a lot of records, a lot of yeah. stuff. I mean, they were just like, you know, my uh, my my uh, my dad went for the uh, swing big band, which is which was the closest thing he could get to to Cuban big band sound. You yeah. know, a lot of horns like uh, Glenn Miller. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Tommy Dorsey, you know, things yep. like that. And yep. also Montalbani. 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 What is it? 101 <laughs> strings. Or, uh, yep. you know, <laughs> so, you know, I, there was very little rock and roll available because at that time it was the Columbia House, which meant it was uh, Columbia Records. So only a few rock bands were actually, or artists, were signed to, to, uh, to Columbia Records. I don't even think Epic Records existed at the time. No, I think I, so. No, I, I think Probably Epic not. didn't. Epic Epic begin 
with uh would it have been off the wall like in 1982 or three well oh no because ozzy was uh subsidiary was, of uh, yeah jet records but yeah. through epic choir riot was pasha epic pasha so it, okay. i was trying to remember pasha yeah it happened in the 70s yeah do you know yeah. that that logo of the running man yep that's apollo creed is it it's yeah. apollo really apollo creed yeah yeah you're kidding me <laughs> i've never heard that we were just talking about um record company logos and how uh, iconic they are because yeah. you just see them. i mean when you're flipping through your records or you throw a record on that logo is invariably either on the record label or obviously on the record packaging so yep. yeah we were just talking about that with uh, in our last show and and i couldn't remember qr's record company when i first heard you guys and it, it, you're right it's pasha yeah 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 the uh the guys used to make fun of, of the logo because they you know it's 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 a running guy you know basically naked you don't see any clothes on him right <laughs> and and there's a hole on his back and there's supposed to be like a flower like a rose and he always just think of him like a guy that broke into a into into a store trying to steal something and he got hit by a shotgun so, <laughs> basically because that's what it looks like i have never heard that now yeah, i'm gonna have I'll, to go back and yeah. look at it yeah look absolutely it. yeah yeah, yeah. i'm so, pretty sure that, that there's some kind of metaphor in there so i'm sure yeah yeah some uh crystal ball message from the early yeah, 70s yeah. to now yeah yeah um so when you made it to the u.s you're in miami um were there were there similarities i mean obviously the culture in miami is so many different things but were there similarities that made your assimilation a little easier or you know, is I mean, was music what you immediately gravitated to? Is is that what your life was made of? No, well, we we actually we were relocated within a couple of years after we arrived. Uh, there was not enough industry. Uh, Miami was a sleepy uh, retirement community, and uh, we came from Havana, which was a bustling city, you know. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, so we went from like, you know, living in a in a in a major city to living in in oh, oh, the sound of retirement and you know how it's big hard. the crickets are I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine miami as yeah. being a sleepy retirement community oh, but yes but that's, that's, time, yeah. that's what it was yeah. there was no industry yeah. nothing um the, the only, only industry was basically uh dying <laughs> really dying you know people just were there to die you know god's waiting room that's right that's what it was yeah <laughs> that was the big industry you know especially south beach you know that if you watch scarface what was really ironic is that the south beach section that um for for the uh scarface scenes you know where mm -hmm. they have like the uh the guy with the what a guy the uh uh the chainsaw you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, prior to Scarface, that was like a completely retirement community, the whole <laughs> South, South Beach. I used to work at a place called, at a hotel called Royal Palm, right on South Beach. Uh -huh. And it was a hotel with a, with a kosher kitchen. And I was a busboy. And, um, the, you know, the people used to come down from, you know, snowbirds come down. And, mm -hmm. and during the winter, just 
stay at the hotel and, they, and we used to like serve and breakfast and lunch and dinner and, and so on and uh, so the whole uh, the whole the whole beach that that's what it was a retirement community you know and uh, so uh once we moved to new jersey that's what i really got a sense of what the uh in the 60s i'm talking 1961 actually we moved there in 63 two years difference uh got a sense of, of real not americana but mm -hmm. america mm -hmm. the united states right yeah you know uh a place i mean we were in west new york which is right across the hudson from new york city between weehawken and elizabeth whatever up there you know mm -hmm. And uh, you know you have the uh, the George Washington Bridge and you have the the Lincoln Tunnel. That's where we live, right in between that. And I could see if I if I really stretch my neck out the window, the bathroom window, I could see the skyline of New York City. You know, and uh, that's when I I that's when I really experience uh, what I would consider. It wasn't really very uh, violent. It was not violent, but there was a separation. You know, when you have like your, your, the Puerto Rican neighborhood, you had the Italian neighborhood, you had the Polish, you had the Jewish, you had the black. You have all these very segmented, segmented part of America. And I thought, wow, this is really weird. This is really strange because in Cuba, yes, in Cuba we had the uh, the Chinese Chinatown, but then again, you know, you will find a Chinese restaurant, you know, in every corner. Uh, they, there was more assimilation with mm -hmm. the Chinese, you know, who actually went to Cuba to escape Mao Zedong, you know, the communist yeah. China, and then the one yeah. back. And 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 it was my Chinese family's friends who told my parents, hey. We're out of here. This guy just declared himself Marxist-Leninist. We're gone, and they left with, within weeks. They went wow. to uh, San Francisco, you know, and uh, so it took us a little bit longer. But that's who made us aware of what was really happening. Because when Castro declared himself during his speech Marxist-Leninist, people just went, "Yeah, whatever you are, we're with you." We had no idea. We wouldn't know what. What does that mean? But if you're saying it, it must be good. <laughs> yeah but uh so anyway so you know that, that that that's when i really felt that i was like mm, the assimilation the assimilation factor because I, I i found some people that did not assimilate with others but I, then i found some that did and some so I, and i understood because i i was struggling with myself trying to retain my uh, my identity and I think that, that's what it came down to, you know, there was all these different neighborhoods because people were just holding on to their, their traditions, traditions yeah. and identity, so their culture, their culture. Yeah. 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 It was more of a cultural separation rather than assimilation, you know, and, and that was 63, uh, Kennedy. So I'm going to really, you know, fast forward here, get Kennedy gets shot in 63 November. Mm -hmm. And then, so we went through uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Eve. Gloom, doom, and gloom, you know, the whole country. And it wasn't until February 
when the Beatles appear in Ed Sullivan that it gave my generation, the kids, like a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, the kids that we were not, you know, interacting with because they, they were from like different cultural backgrounds, all of a sudden we had a common. Wow, music, the Beatles, these, this thing that came from England, that it's completely different than anything that's going on in here and it's bring, bringing us some joy and there's a little mass, there's a little hysteria going on, especially it happened in New York and since we were so close to New York, it really rippled over to, to where I was living, you know. And overnight, kids went from like having the pompadours to combing their hair, you know, getting bangs, and because it was just a matter of taking the hair and putting it down. You yeah, know, like that. different, just a different technique, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and you're 14 years old, so as a teenager, it's like, wow, this is incredible. Yeah, and that's and and I've never seen males having such a, a a mass hysteria reaction from females you know i have yeah. seen maybe El- videos and movies of elvis but that, that was kind of like fading you know about elvis yeah you know yeah elvis was more like almost like a generation before me i was still a child when elvis you know made it big then i be then i became a teenager in 63 and and that coincided a few months later in my first year of a teenager with raging hormones, just like everybody else in my, around me in my <laughs> class. That's what we saw, like, okay, if you play rock and roll, girls will react to you like that. Yeah. And that was as much I'm of a, in. <laughs> yeah. So that was as much of a driving force as the music itself, right? <laughs> it was. Oh, music took a second place. Then, it really did, yeah. you know. And, you know, I thought there was some kind of a uh, quick pill that I could take, you know, metaphorically about a shortcut. There's going to be a shortcut. I, I thought, oh, Paul McCartney, okay, in five years from now, I'll be playing like him, you know. And, uh, you know, what, 50-something, 60-something years later, I'm still trying to play like him. <laughs> you know? you know? did, did you start out playing the bass or did you just gravitate to that? Uh, well, again, you know, we had very, uh, uh, our, our finances were very, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. We didn't have any money, let's put it this way. I mean, my mom and dad both worked, but still, you know, they just made enough money for, you know, to keep the family, you know, to keep, to keep the lights on. So whenever we, I, because I have a brother, he's four years younger than mm-hmm. me. And whenever one of us wanted something, it had to be like, okay, if, if we're going to get this, this is, your brother's also going to use it. So they didn't have to get two. They just get one, you know. Worked out, worked out well for Robert, right? Yeah. It, it, I mean, it worked out well, well for, for everybody, you know. And uh, so it's, for example, we had one pair of roller skates. <laughs> That's it. So Robert spent most of the time, and I wasn't really interested in roller skates, but it was available for me if I wanted to. And it's the same thing with a bicycle, you know, when we moved back to Miami, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, but the guitar, yeah, there was a guitar in the family. Uh, we bought it through Spiegel catalog. Oh, uh, man. Spiegel, which, yeah. which, you know, decades later, that's become a popular mode of, uh, of, of purchasing musical instruments. 
Yeah. You know, and uh, as a matter of fact, there, there's, there's, uh, there's certain stores that I, uh, I trust. Okay. It's, it's come down to that, you know, the trust right. factor, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so anyways, uh, that's my, my base because I really did not set out to be a bass player. I wanted to be a guitar player. But I didn't have enough, uh, there was no money to get a, a tutor. So I just picked things by ear, listening to, to the radio. Because again, the Columbia House did not have rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to rock and roll, you have to listen to the radio. So you get to pick up things really fast. And, and again, tuners. We didn't have that what you know the clip on tuners that you get today. No, we oh, have yeah. So again, tuning by ear. How do you tune this thing? You know. So uh, you didn't have you didn't have a metronome. You didn't have a metronome in your phone. <laughs> nothing, 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 nothing. And uh, so it wasn't until we moved back down to Miami that I actually, when I uh, each block in the neighborhood had a band. So all the kids in one block had to belong to that band. You couldn't cross the street and jump over to the other band. That was not allowed. There were boundaries, right? It was the version of, it was your version of gangs, but you had bands. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So, so we, uh, so I went to my block garage band rehearsal and I show up with my, my old craftsman acoustic guitar and said, you know, and I walk in and just everybody's plugged into one amplifier. <laughs> Everything, vocals, guitars, you know, bass, you know. Actually, there was no bass player yet. It was all guitar players. And a drummer who was, who was basically playing on a, on a, a phone book. <laughs> because back in the day, the phone books yep, were really thick. That thick. That, yeah. that thick. That's, that's yeah. all you had, you know. It's a really dense sound, too. Yeah. So, so he was like. I think he had a Coca-Cola uh, wooden box for his kick drum that he would just like kick without a pedal, just kick it. <laughs> and then uh, in, in the phone book for, for the snare. And uh, so I show up with, with, my, with my guitar and it says, yeah, you know, I just moved in, moved in and in the neighborhood, I want to join the band. And he says, well, we got too many guitar players. If you want to play bass, you're in the band. So that's how I began playing bass. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the emulation of Paul McCartney began. <laughs> well, I mean, by then there were so many, so many incredible bass players. Uh, yeah. uh, by the time that I seriously, that I got my first, that I worked for at that place, Royal Palm in, uh, in South Beach as a busboy, I got my first professional uh, bass, uh, Gibson EB. And uh, by then we had, you know, besides McCartney and James Jamerson, anything that you heard on the radio, sometimes, you know, like I grew up listening to James Jamerson, not knowing his name because he was a studio musician mm-hmm. and there was no Google at the time. Yeah, right. This right. guy, you know, right. <laughs> or girl, you know, Carol yeah. Kay. Oh that's, yeah. That's another one. I didn't know that it was a, actually a woman playing on those incredible lines. You know, that, re- that, that yeah. wrecking, that wrecking crew documentary mm-hmm. oh, is, yeah. it is fantastic. I would, I would suggest it to anybody. And, and yeah. there's so many people that still don't know that mm. m- so much of that music was recorded by those people. Yeah. And exactly. It's fantastic. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. so 
basically at that point you started seriously playing bass and uh where did that take you well seriously uh i have very little education uh i mean i was that was my that was my my, my motivation in life that was my joy in life to play yeah. to to be in a band to be in a band to be in a band. Sometimes the commitment of being in a band is a little different than the, the, your personal commitment to an instrument or to music itself. Mm -hmm. I think of music in, in different layers. Ultimately, the top layer is music, music itself, learning music, learning what, you know, the intricacies of why things work or why things appeal to the masses. Because, you know, you can go in, in any direction musically. I mean, if you, if you're just making music for yourself, you just play what sounds good to you. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, ultimately, that should be the goal. But if you want to be more specific, like let's say if you really want to make a living out of it, you don't want to take too many chances. There's certain formulas, and that's why certain songwriters, because it all be begins with a song, mm -hmm. you know, certain songwriters, uh, they know what works and doesn't work and they stick with certain formulas you know even when they when they collaborate with band members and i'm talking about songwriters who are just composers for a living not band mm -hmm. members you know in the band the right music for the band and sometimes you put those those two together and and then you get a uh, an interesting collaboration because you get the formula and then you get the formula coming from the professional songwriter and then you get the uh the different point of view uh, that it's outside of the mold of the formula from the band member that might be the the principal songwriter in the group yeah so that's yeah so you start learning about all those things you know uh as you grow as as you, because i spent a lot of time studying without having a formal musical background, why am I playing this song that's on the radio? What got the song on the radio? Not just because of the performance from the artist, but the song itself. It's what the made songs. This, yeah, it's it's the song. always the songs. Yeah, yeah. And what's the function of the bass to support the, this, the blueprint of the song? Because, you know, each instrument, you know, you look at a staff, you got the bass, clef and the treble clef and 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 the uh, also the uh the the percussion you know staff you know playing and everything aligns mm -hmm. you know there's a certain thing as a feel that you could go a little bit be, uh, behind it a little bit in front that's why like a conductor you know mm -hmm. you slow it down you know and then go faster so it's it's some of the best drummers I ever played with are not metronomic, which means that right. they're not right on the beat all the time. They're just they right. conduct, they conduct, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I'm a I'm a drummer, Rudy. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so how do you? How do you you're play? talking about you're talking about that magic pocket. Yes. That somehow happens somewhere in yeah. those little spaces in between the notes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to me, it's you know from being part of the rhythm section all these years. Uh, it all comes down to listening, listening to what the song, the emotion of the song, you know, I, and, and, and just, I'm going to say this because I, I want to also talk about something else before I forget about it. Uh, what is a song? What is a great singer? 
So please let me go back to Ronnie James Dio after I say this. So we remind me okay. of that. Okay, we'll make a mental note. <laughs> okay, in, in case I forget. Uh, but uh, yeah, it wasn't until I started playing in 1972 with Frankie Benelli in Florida that, uh, that he actually taught me what it was like the role of the bass player in a uh, rhythm section. You know, Frankie and I, you know, we, we lost him uh, in August. <clears throat> I know, and I'm so sorry. I Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, he, we, we had a 48-year friendship and, 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 and bandmates on and off, you know, all that time. And um, but uh, going going back to Dio, uh, there's you know singers. I've I've worked with so many singers, you know, from David Coverdale to Ronnie James Dio to Jeff Tate to Ozzy, Kevin DeBro, uh, the guys from Blue Oyster Cult, you know. In the Rudy, that that is quite a list. <laughs> and, and I'm probably forgetting other incredible people too. But, yeah. But but nevertheless, those, those are like the uh, the first one that that, that that come to mind, and that they're all very different, you know. And uh, but one of the things that Ronnie had that it might have been a case that most of the songs you ever heard Ronnie James Dio sing, he wrote himself. He wrote the lyrics, so that's his story or mm -hmm. the story coming from him, and. When he sings, he's actually becoming that person that he's singing about, or the character. The character, yeah, the character. That's that's very different from taking vocal lessons, which is so important, and and singing notes. Right. It's you know if you are missing the element of becoming that character, you have a great voice. It's like phrasing if you're missing that phrasing you're just playing notes mm -hmm. you're not telling the story yeah and and that's one of the characteristics that ronnie had that very few others you know that uh, that i play with had and of course there were characteristics that others had that ronnie didn't have mm -hmm. you know just because you know in order for him to remain true to to who he is as an artist he just could not be everything he had to be ronnie james dio right and those are some huge boots to fill oh, <laughs> i mean go. uh i love all the stuff that he did and just am now really starting to appreciate more but mm -hmm. the i i have always heard that uh performance wise ronnie never never warmed up I've, I've, I've heard he literally, whether you got there and you waited until you went on stage, whatever it was, it was, you know, split second Ronnie singing. Is that, is that, is that true? Uh, it is exactly how I was. It's, uh, he was rarely there for sound check because he really didn't, you know, he, uh, we had a, 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 a monitor engineer that really knew how to tune the monitors for Ronnie. The wedges he never used in ears, even though the technology was available, he was not into that, and uh, he never asked us to turn down. You know, he was even at rehearsals. 
And the last set of rehearsals that we had with him were in November of 2009. And we were getting ready to go out and do a deal tour. That was going to be, you know, that was his last rehearsal, rehearsing with us. Because he passed six months after that, almost to the day. And uh, uh, yeah, the last rehearsal we has made we had was well the last time that we gathered to rehearse he did not show up because he had to go to emergency and then he was transferred over to houston to see the oncologist was uh november 16th and he passed away may 16th so six months to the date and uh, we were getting ready uh we were going to leave the following day to go to start a uh, european uh winter tour with dio and uh, because since he had been touring with Heaven and Hell, we deal as a band, we stopped playing Black Sabbath songs. Mm -hmm. so, what he did, so what he decided to do on that tour specifically was to go back to like rainbow songs that had never, he had, that he hadn't pl played on stage yeah. in decades. Yeah, and I gotta tell you, he it was magnificent. He was, even though he he had cancer at the time, yeah, just his singing voice, it was just unbelievable. And he never phoned it in, even at rehearsal, he would never phone it in. It was I like just, I, I just find it hard to understand how somebody can sing like that, and the way he set the bar so high when he recorded, mm -hmm. and not have. A technique to warm up or down or anything but i guess if it if it ain't broke don't fix it right well i he had technique oh it's no i'm not saying he didn't have technique i meant like a warm-up and a cool down technique um well he he attributes his technique to studying classical trumpet as a child uh, yeah when he was a child uh early teens child you know yeah and with an actual you know, classical trumpet player from the from the symphony orchestra, huh? And I believe from Cortland, which is where he's from. So, uh, so he, he had training, proper yeah. training on breathing and circular breathing using your diaphragm and all that. And and you could hear it. You, you can hear it in his voice where his vocal placements were and how smooth they all were and how full you know vocally he was and he knew when to use the head the head tones and all of that so he he was he tr either he got vocal training or he he knew he just knew how to do it you know plus if you're italian you come from a long line of opera singers right. <laughs> yeah so that's a good that, point you know? yeah you grew up with those voices and it was kind of like okay let me match mario lanza which is one of his favorite <laughs> singers yep. you know or or uh or caruso you know whatever but but with rock and roll because he had a lot of compression in his voice he could get a lot of growl with open with an open voice you know and uh so but then you mix that with and i think again being italian being that dramatic you know yeah. with the singing you know you know it's like if you, if, if you listen to Ronnie James Dio and he sings the word down, he's going to sing it down. Yeah. He's not going to go down, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to do that. He's going to go down. Wow. 
down and then he's gonna go like this and you know you know down yeah <laughs> character in every syllable he ever recorded no absolutely no doubt yeah absolutely i yeah. i've never i never heard him have an off night never ever that's, that's amazing a, that is incredible yeah yeah, yeah. so when you what was it that determined i mean so you knew frankie how old were you when you met frankie oh easy 1972 22 years old on my birthday on your on birthday. your birthday yeah yeah, yeah. wow yeah. yeah yeah and so how did that did, did that point you into more of a direction that you started to realize that that being a musician was going to be your life i mean i guess my question is what was there a moment where you knew that or was it i mean yeah that's that's a really good question because when i met frankie i had already gone through the whole process of like you know having a girlfriend that made it you know have to make give make you the choice of is me or the bass and you know things like that so you know i was 22 years old i yeah. I, I wasn't a teenager or a kid i already been playing in, in club bands in in miami i was i have been making a living mm -hmm. I was trying to get get out of the club circuit in Miami, which was more top forty. Top forty yeah. cover. Yeah, I was gonna ask you why yeah. you were playing. Yeah, yeah, and still get into covers, but play rock, you know, mm -hmm. Deep Purple, and you know whatever things were allowed by the clubs because still, right. you know, they had to be kind of danceable, but still they, they they could be rock and roll. And I actually, when I met Frankie, I had seen him the night before his band named ginger were a last minute replacement for the band that was going to open up for bowie uh the ziggy stardust tour wow at pirates world uh, you grew up in south florida i, know I did, well i grew up in india i moved there for college for my first year but oh, i yeah. spent Where? a lot of time there uh i lived well i went to the artist art institute of fort lauderdale Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so in Hollywood, Florida, they have Pirates World, which is oh, okay. basically an amusement park. Yep. With a, a performing stage. Mm -hmm. It's a shed, basically. <laughs> and, but everybody played there. Uh, and I tell you why. It's, um, I mean, I saw Bill, you know, like on the same Bill Watch Tour and the faces with oh. Deep Purple, you know, yeah. Joe Cocker and whatever. Yeah. I mean, there were so many. Everybody played there because, um, back back then either the sportatorium or pirates world were the venues where the bands that had been touring in the states would do the last show or their first show because most of the bands were coming in from england so oh, so it was a good yeah, kickoff for, place or ending yeah 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 for shipping the equipment back in the day where you know used to ship everything yeah, you know, yeah. from from england and europe they will come down to the uh, Fort Lauderdale Everglades port, mm -hmm. ports of Everglades. Yep. Right, and, it's straight from my school. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so you remember the flying machine? I've no, heard you, of it. You're not I've old enough for that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, it was, it was, it was there. Uh, okay, there was, uh, it's, all, it's all coming back. Uh, yeah, okay, there, there's, there's a diner's named Lester's. Lester's, Lester's. yes on okay. uh right where uh 17th street causeway is right yeah okay that yeah. road that yep. leads to the port 
Yep. Right. 80, is it right where 84 hits it? I think. Yeah, but yeah. but but it keeps going all the way to the port, right? Yeah. On yep. the right, right before you get to the gates of the port, there was a club named the Flying Machine. Okay. That's where I okay. met Frankie. But the night before, I saw him perform at um, at Pirates World with his band Ginger, and and he he just completely blew blew my mind. I had no idea that they were a local band. I just saw them and I go, oh my god, you know, I was with with my date and I say, I this band is amazing, especially the drummer. And then Bowie came on and I was not really impressed because they had like very low energy in the band. I said, wow, they should just bring back that opening band, especially the drummer, <laughs> you know? So, so I was super impressed with what I saw. So I, I, the next day on my birthday, I went to Flying Machine and I'm hanging out there and, uh, and I was talking to somebody and they say, oh, that's one of the guys from Ginger. And I, the band that played last night I, I, with Pirates World, yeah, yeah, that's them. And I went over and I thought Frankie was the bass player, right? So I'm like, introduce myself and I say, hey, you know, I, I saw you guys last night. You guys were amazing and blah, 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 blah. Especially your drummer. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so Frankie goes, oh, thanks a lot. I'm the drummer. You know, <laughs> they shook my hand. And, uh, and from that point on, you know, we, 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 we hooked up. We started playing together and, and so on. And uh, so he was really instrumental, instrumental, you know, from like, he, he was kind of like the, he, he mentored me because what happened at that time is I was trying to break away from playing with just Cubans. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> if you want to play Miami Sound Machine music, you got to play with the Cubans. Yep. If you want to play British rock, yeah, yeah you got to play the American yeah. kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And and I spent years playing in full Cuban bands, and there's something good to be saying about that because especially nowadays when you know multicultural music and, and everything really works, but it didn't back then. It was purity, right? Which is very ironic because most English bands were copying American blues artists. <laughs> exactly. Right, right? It, was leaving, it was leaving the US, going to Europe, and then coming back. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't kind that of, ironic? Yeah. Kind of like the boomerang you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there was all these blues clubs in in Miami that all of these blues artists would play for like 20 people, right? Then you go to <laughs> the Sporatorium and watch Led Zeppelin play the songs that this guy wrote with 20 people in the audience, them playing the same song in front of 10,000 people. Unbelievable. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> at some point, they started getting royalties. <laughs> you know? Right. right. They had to. They had to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's how we, we got the music. You know, one, one time I was having dinner with, uh, with, with Paul Rogers, and I was trying to explain to him and say, hey, I was in Miami, and I got to tell you, in the 60s, Miami, it was definitely the South. Yeah. You know, it was the South. You know, all the problems, all, all, you know, all the problems that we had, you know, and I'm Cuban, so I was in the middle of the problem. You know, I was, I, I had to deal with, you know, people talk about racism, all that. I've been dealing with racism since 1961. So it's like, but I learned 
I, I understood it, especially I did not really clearly understand it until I arrived in New Jersey. What it really was, because like we were talking earlier, you had separation, separation. And what I experienced, it was actually people holding on to their traditions. You know, it's like, for example, the Irish came to New York at a certain time and took over a certain section and, and they became mostly the police department. And it's like, no, you can't join the police department unless you're Irish, right? And yeah. then, you know, the Jewish community, okay, well, you know, they, they started getting into like, let's say the jewelry and the diamond, you know, jewelry, trade. clothing. Yeah. yeah, you can't get into that trade unless you're Jewish or become yeah. part of the Jewish, you know. So I wasn't, it wasn't per se of like, you know, whites against blacks or Latinos or so ever. It was kind of like, they're protecting their, their heritage, their culture. Yeah. They're that just protecting sense. it. Yeah. They're, they're not letting you in because you're not one of them. I'm not saying it's right. Well, I'm saying it, that's the way it was. Right. You know, it's, it's part of history. It's, it's definitely, a, and you that's know. definitely a, a different way to look at it for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, for other people from the outside, they may not, they they may not pick up on those finer points. Yeah, because definitely. those lines that were so so clear, especially in a, in in let's say New York City or the urban, uh, urban you know, cities where I live. I mean, West New York was not a major city, but it was it was definitely urban. You know, and uh, they were just understood, you know, and so when my family moved back to Miami, there was enough of a Latin community that my family did not feel, my mom and dad, the, the need to assimilate because when we came back to Miami three years later, that's like we're talking about 1967 by then there was a large Cuban community and we just you know we just they just felt like what it is Miami became an extension of, of Havana of Cuba itself you know yeah and I gotta tell you and it's in its own ways it had it had its own if you and that one of us you shouldn't be here because we were surrounded by that it was kind of like unspoken you know, very rarely, rarely did Cubans move to, to Miami Beach, unless you were Jewish Cuban. There was a huge community there. But then again, it, to me, it was all a matter of, it's not like I hate you or I think you, I'm better than you. It's just that, I don't know, we're trying to maintain our culture. identity, our yeah. culture, and our identity, Yeah, you know, and... Yeah. You know, as time progresses, that it's a point of view that gets old. It's dated. Yeah. It's dated. I, I know it is with me. Yeah. You know, and as I travel around the world, I see the differences with especially European countries. Eu countries that have not been colonized. They might have been invaded, but not colonized. Yeah. You know, which is the case in the United States or uh, 
North, <clears throat> North America, including Canada, of course, Mexico, Central America, South America. It's all colonized. Right. Yeah. With, with different degrees of, uh, and, I, I, and I, I'm not going to use immigration as a blanket because you have slavery. That's not immigration. Mm -mm. That's kidnapping. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And you have those layers. You have the colonials, you have the immigrants, you have the slaves, and you have the refugees. And some blends, you know, different categories of, of, of each, you know. And uh, and the natives. The ones that were here from the very yeah, beginning. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know. So as I travel, as I travel around the world, I, I see wow, you know, the the possibilities that we have in the United States, if we all can work together and and really appreciate and embrace what we bring, what we all bring, it's not even differences. We're not any different one culture from the other. You know, we're just, we, if you put it down on paper and you take away the ethnicity of any of those culture, every one of them wants exactly the same thing. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Rudy, you in 77 make the bold decision to, I'm going to LA. Yeah. What, what brought that about? Uh, well, it was as far west as we could go. <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted to get away from where your home was. Oh, no, no, it wasn't that. No, actually, it, it was uh, where the, uh, the, the industry, the industry was sure. at the time was because it now it's everywhere yeah and now it, now the industry is in our phone <laughs> well i mean isn't that, isn't that amazing <laughs> yeah you could have gone to new york too i did i did i did but i found new york especially in the 70s very tough to you know to be a starving musician in new york city in the 70s yeah. was very tough you know uh and I did. I'm, actually, my brother stayed in uh, in New Jersey, and I went back uh, right before I joined Quiet Ride in '78, and I played with him in the uh, New Jersey uh, Howard Johnson Lounge circuit, you know. <laughs> and uh, so we did that. And uh, but prior to that, I was actually in the Midwest. I wound up in. Omaha, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska, yeah, yeah. And and we put a band together, and we started touring the Midwest. And it was at that time that I actually went to L.A. after touring the Midwest and, and saying, okay, let's do this for real, because there was different musical turnovers, you know, where certain specific genres became more uh favored by the record companies you know we're talking about you had disco which is the reason why it really left florida and then new wave came in new wave and, and punk, and punk yeah. came in and so it's like okay let's 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 go to la i think there's going to be more opportunities there so in 78 Actually, in 76, that's why I went to L.A., and then I played with my brother around 77, and then by 78, 
in New Jersey. Then in 78, I, I went back to LA because I needed to get some money. That, that, that's why I went to play, play, play with Robert in New Jersey, get some money, and then move back to LA again. So I, I, I went back to LA about two or three times before I actually settled. Was it was it Quiet Riot that uh, first took off out there? I mean, I or uh, what was it that in '78? Yeah, well, for me, yeah, yeah, that that, yeah. Was, that that was the first. Actually, that was the only local band that I that I joined. Local, I mean, being a local band, not not being a band of like people that moved in to LA, right, to put a band together. Yeah, like like we orig originally did in '76, and then I went back to New Jersey to play lounges with my brother, make some money, and went back out to LA again, because Quiet Riot was really an LA band. Yep, you know the 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 like the, the quintessential LA band, really. Well, Van Halen was. Yeah, Van Halen was. Yeah, as a Van Halen had it had it completely together then. All actually, they were older then too. You know, or older, older as a band, they have been around longer than Quiet Riot was, mm -hmm. you know, and had more experience. And, uh, and, and, but by the time that Quiet, that I joined Quiet Riot, we were the, the heirs to that local right. throne, you know, and then New Wave and Disco that I was, I was getting away from Chicago, finally arrived in LA in the form of Devo. I'll never forget the first time I saw Devo. And I said, okay, things are really going to change now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the knack. They've got plant things on their head. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is like, <laughs> you can't compete with this. It was a concept that they had. They, they had characters like Bougie Boy and, and a crib. <laughs> and uh, in a playpen, and they play, and they have videos that they, because they were from uh, from art school. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and they, they were from the Midwest. Yeah, they were from yeah. Ohio, right? Like uh, Toledo or uh, Akron, Dayton. Akron, yeah. Akron, 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 Akron. That's right. That's Akron, right. Yeah. And I mean, even though it was not my cup of tea, man, I said, "Wow, this is this is so different. This is so cool," you know. And they they just they got signed immediately, you know. So, because uh, they're playing the same clubs as you guys. Once, <laughs> it seems like they played the Starwood once, and they got signed, and that was it. Then they were wow. national. <laughs> <Yeah>. Interesting. <laughs> huh. So you're in Quiet Riot, um, and then they, it took off in Japan, right? Yeah, it was a, a, a kind of like back in those days. Getting a Japanese deal was kind of like uh, putting out a record on your by yourself now. Yeah, you know, self. You know, record, you know, record yeah. deal, uh, because you know things were different. You know, getting a record deal in in Japan did not did not guarantee you getting any notoriety in the United States, which always was always the main market. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Now, you and Randy were teaching uh, guitar lessons at a school. Uh, well, Randy's mom's school, uh, Musonia. And uh, he had been teaching there for many years, and then they needed a bass uh, instructor. And they asked he, Randy asked me. I said, well, "Of course, I would love to." 
And that's when I really started spending more time with Randy because prior to that, there was kind of like a, uh, a schedule that Quiet Riot had that we would play about two or three weekends a month. The rest, we would rehearse just about every evening and do the set forwards and backwards and then work on whatever demo song we were getting ready to, uh, to go in the studio and cut a demo with, you know. And that was it. So it wasn't like we did a whole lot of socializing. And didn't uh, have time. you didn't have time to, did you? No, that, <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely did not. So once I started teaching at Musonia, that's when I got to spend more time with Randy. And again, he, uh, he gave me pointers. He mentored me in, in, in how to teach, how to approach it, because I had, I had no, no idea. I mean, I knew what I should be teaching a beginner basis. I had no problem with that. But one thing I didn't understand was that that they wanted to like take off immediately. Okay, on my first lesson to them, they have to at least know how to play one song that they can take home and have fun playing with it. Right. So that was one of the many things that, that Randy taught me. You know. What an amazing person to learn stuff from. I, oh, absolutely. I've, I've only read about him obviously but no, no. um that was that where his true love was in teaching and playing classical playing classical music yeah uh no i would say music in general i mean we would we would we would get off the stage and go go in the back of the bus and and open up a bottle of wine and i would have some yogurt and and listen to a uh, lee rittenauer that was oh, okay. the, the record that we were listening to, uh, Captain Fingers. And um, just lay back and listen, li listen to music, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 it wasn't like Randy was going like, you know, I don't think he was really a metal head in the sense of like being a Deep Purple or, or, or Led Zeppelin or even a Black Sabbath fanatic. You know, he just loved music. He just loved mm. great, great compositions. Songs. So what was it like when he was chosen to play with Ozzy? I mean, obviously that changed changed the dimension of Quiet Riot for you yeah. guys. Yeah. Uh, once Randy left to join Ozzy, there was no, uh, no point in continuing as Quiet Riot. So uh, I started doing different things some of them with Frankie Banali. And then eventually I moved in with Kevin Dubrow and he had his own band called Dubrow. And uh, I played with in Dubrow. And meanwhile, I was also in a band called Angel. Mm -hmm. And with Angel, they had lost the record deal. So we, we, I didn't get to perform with them. We just spent time in the studio. Mm -hmm. doing demos and uh so i got i got the call to uh in 1981 to audition for for ozzy and uh i was really you know i was really in, into playing with angel and so when i got the call from sharon i turned it down and then then oh I, sharon called yeah sharon called yeah and uh 
and and then I uh, and then I told Kevin, and Kevin started yelling at me, "What are you doing? You know, <laughs> you're sleeping on the floor in my apartment here, and you're starving, and you could be playing with Randy again, and blah blah blah." So you know that was. You know that it made sense. <laughs> you know? Turned out to be turned out to be a good choice, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the next day, uh, unexpectedly, uh, Ozzy called, and and uh, basically what happened was that they were looking for a bass player in LA. So in LA, mm -hmm. since Randy really was in one band, Quiet Riot, mm -hmm. he, he didn't whole, he didn't know a whole lot of people, bass players. Mm -hmm. So they were looking for a particular profile of a bass player uh somebody who most important would not be a bad influence on ozzy you know drinking drugs or whatever and somebody who could play the songs somebody who would be a, a a decent hang in the bus because we're all traveling together you know yeah and somebody that looked had a, had a good stage presence and things like that and 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 randy kept saying well i know the guy rudy rudy's the guy so that's how i got the second call because, because Ozzy told me, man, you know, Randy keeps saying that you're the guy and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come down and audition. Now, you know, 40 years later, everybody has a copy of the record. 40 years ago, <laughs> it wasn't even out when I right. in the United States, right. when I when, when I threw with them. And even if it was out, I couldn't afford to buy one. So, <laughs> so, so what did you play at the audition? Oh, so so Randy came over that morning, the following day after I got the phone call, and he went over the parts with me, and said, uh, and and you know he he uh, on, on, in Kevin Dubrow's uh, apartment, and uh, but I see I, this is a song I never heard before, two songs, uh, uh, I don't know and Crazy Train, so I had to like retain that quickly. Very quick, and then we went in early. There was the, there was a line of bass players waiting to audition, and <laughs> so and did you like, see them like a cattle call? Exactly. <laughs> were they in the waiting yeah. room? Did you walk past them? Yeah, they were right there. <laughs> I, I could see them as I'm going over over the stuff with, with Randy, and because I just expected you know to like okay play the song a couple of times and just, you know go back to the apartment and whatever happened happened. So. You know, I, here I am going over the song with, with Randy and, and Tommy Aldridge, who I just met right there, you know, for the first time. Actually, I met him the night before, but I really didn't get to talk too much about, you know, with him because uh, I just spent most of the time talking with, 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 with Ozzy. He was, he was feeling me out, you know. And uh, so I played the songs a couple of times, then Ozzy and, Sh uh, and Sharon show up, and I played the song again without Ozzy. Then Ozzy got up on stage and played them again with him singing. Then he goes outside with Sharon and Ozzy comes back on stage and says, Hey man, do you want the gig? He <laughs> 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 said, yeah. Then, then Sharon turns over to the cattle call and says, okay, boys, thank you so much for coming. We found a bass player and they were not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Was it was that unusual having uh, the lead guy and his wife both make decisions? Yeah, it was Ozzy's band, and she was his his manager. That yeah, was, that was it. So, 
then I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that when the roller coaster ride really started? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it felt just like that. It was a roller coaster. Uh, and thank God that, that I had Randy with, you know, to show me the ropes because he was, he was in his own words. He says, listen, Sharon and Ozzy, they're wonderful people, but they're like no one else you have ever met before. And that 40 years later, those words ring. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and it says that there's going to, things are going to happen that have nothing to do with you. That you might think, oh, this, this is because of me and, and they feel a certain way about me and says, no, this is, this is the way they are. Right. And so we, he drove me after the audition, we went up to Sharon's family home. And uh, this beautiful home in the Hollywood Hills that Howard Hughes had built for Jane Russell, one of his uh, girlfriends at the time. So it was in this beautiful mansion. Real, real small, subtle place. I'm yeah, sure. very, very <laughs> wonderful, beautiful place. <laughs> and uh, so I go there and, and, and on the way there, Randy's driving his car. It's the only car he, he ever bought. Or that he, it's the same car that he had when he left Quiet Riot to join Ozzy, he left the park at his mom's house because he lived there with his mom. And then when he would come off the road, he would just go back to his bedroom that he grew up in, play with <laughs> a little Z train train set, drive his, his car. It was a, uh, a rabbit, Volkswagen rabbit. Volkswagen rabbit. Oh, that is yeah, awesome. Or, or Scirocco, one of those two. Scirocco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so we're in his car and he's saying, okay, now they're going to test you. They're going to, you know, they're going to offer you a bunch of stuff just to see, you know, how you react, you know, like whatever. They're going to tempt you basically. And since, listen, my, my, my whole philosophy, especially during, during those days was like, I had seen a lot of casualties, rock and roll casualties at a place called the Rainbow Bar and Grill. Oh yeah, musicians that were my my heroes, who had become casualties because here they are doing you know getting drunk and getting high every single night. They weren't they weren't accomplishing anything, and they were ten times more talented than than I was. And here they are, they're struggling, they're struggling. So I say, you know, so that taught me to stay away from drugs, alcohol, you know, any of that. I hadn't left Miami, which is if I wanted to do drugs, I would just stay in Miami. <laughs> that's what that's the platform is. Yeah, yeah, they're they're available there, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, very much so. You know, <laughs> booze and, and drugs, stay there. You know, stay in Miami if that's what you really want to do with your life. No, I wanted to be a professional musician. So so I, I stayed away from falling into that trap. So it was it was not hard to decline any, any you know, anything. If 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 ever any musician who is not really an addict fell into that or at least went along with it, it was peer, peer pressure. Because I know many cases where musicians were not trusted if they didn't have some sort of a habit or, or, or would share and partake. Was that because they were maybe 
more of an outsider because everybody else is doing it or yeah. basically yeah yeah no yeah they were not trusted because it's the same way well, as it's back to the old neighborhood scene yeah yeah exactly exactly because if they didn't have something on you they couldn't trust you right so huh. it was like a cult like a cult yeah <laughs> well, how did you guys how did you guys exist within that then because i know randy wasn't into any of that stuff no. either was yeah. he no so how do you exist in a band with somebody like Ozzy Osbourne and half, half the band doesn't do that stuff? Okay, because this is what I'm getting at. Uh, <laughs> what, the test was to see if I would be a partaker. Mm -hmm. Since I was not, I passed the test. <laughs> oh, because they wanted someone to help keep Ozzy on the straight and narrow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So not exactly. only do you, not only do you have to learn these songs, but you also have to babysit. <laughs> well, it, Sharon did an incredible job. I mean, she yeah. she did an a daily intervention with Ozzy. You know, this is not breaking news. <laughs> right, right, that, right, right. You know? <laughs> it's the way it is. You know, they had a reality show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's uh, 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 so yeah. So basically. I was being tested just to see if if I would fall for it. So what Randy was actually cautioning me about is, okay, they're going to test you based on on peer pressure. They're going to see what your breaking point is of peer pressure. And then once he revealed that to me, I understood where that was coming from. You know. Wow. Because because let's let's face it they had 10 days to find the bass player put the show together go and get be on, on the stage road and get on the road be on the road play on stage they didn't have time to waste and so much they have put so much into it especially the family because even though it was jet records uh through epic there was not enough financial support coming from epic to support the tour so there was the 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 Ardens, Sharon's father, Jed Records, they they basically financed that. Finance financed the tour. And on top of that, you have Ozzy's career right. on the line. You know. Yeah. There was so much, so much pressure that there could not be any any mistakes. And if they were, they it should definitely not come from a musician that had just joined the band. Because she had she uh, Sharon knew that she had a big Oof, a big, uh, big job having to keep Ozzy straight, straight as possible. Which was, well, I mean, that's that's a, you know, that's an interesting position for her to be in because obviously she is married to him. Yeah, but her, you know, the success of the tour kind of hangs in the balance yeah. because her family was supporting it. Yeah, but also there had to be some kind of love element. Really yeah, oh, loving, absolutely loving, loving the person. Otherwise, anybody else would have just walked away from it and say, you know what, bring somebody else from the office to handle this guy because I'm, I'm out of here. I can't handle it. So you know? was it I mean, you know, we all we've all heard multiple stories, but was it, you know, a crazy train? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a book about it. <laughs> It's called Off the Rails, and you're holding it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all in there. I got to tell you, I got it when it came out. 
and I absolutely love the book and being basically a tribute to Randy. It's, mm. it's amazing because there aren't many people who could write a book like that. Uh, my motivation for writing the book, it's in the back of the book mm -hmm. uh, on, on the back cover. Yeah. And, and it's still today. It, it is exactly the motivation. People ask me, Oh, I weren't you going to write another book? And I said like, why I have no motivation to write another book. No, but what I do, I do this. I have my own radio show, Six Degrees of Sarzo on Monsters of Rock Radio, which awesome. started out as a podcast, and it was originally called The Dash, which is, you know, on a headstone is that line, which is life, mm -hmm. yeah, between the yeah. birth date and the, and the death date, you know. And uh, I, uh, I started doing it because I had been to... Uh, a few memorials from musicians, friends of mine and colleagues. And, and I saw all of these musicians getting up and speaking and about how they felt about the person who had just passed away. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice just to have the person actually document that while the, the person is alive? While the person's alive. Yeah. 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 And, and Wikipedia is so full of misinformation just because just about anybody can go in there and, and edit it, yeah. Yeah, contribute to it. And, and I said, well, you know, it would be nice to actually have the person talk about their their musical career and their lives. And, you know, it would be kind of like having 200 years from now, it would be us having Bach, Beethoven, Charlie Parker, all these wonderful musicians, composers talk about what it was like. You know, that's why I enjoy doing uh, these uh, podcasts because on my podcast, I, I don't get to talk as much about myself as I, as I do about other folks uh, and my guests, you know, yeah. or things that we have in common, you know, or things, experiences that we went through. Sometimes it's musicians that I, that we played in the same band, but at different times, different generations of the band. Right. Yeah. And it's so, so that's what I do instead of sitting down to write a book. We have the radio show. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, we don't have to, you know, drive it into the ground about Ozzy. After, um, well, you went back to Quiet Riot. Mm -hmm. And again, that's a history-making band when you guys yeah. did break in the U.S. So. Yeah, it what was it like going from Ozzy's band uh, back to your older band and then that just blowing up? It was very interesting. Uh, uh, and I have to give you the source, the pivotal point of the band becoming Quiet Riot because when Randy left uh, uh, to join Ozzy, it stopped being called Quiet Riot. Kevin went out on his own, put the band Dubrow. Mm -hmm. Kevin, that band, or it could, because there was a lot of things, as a matter of fact, when I joined what became known as Metal, uh, uh, Quiet Riot Metal Health version of the band, because mm -hmm. we always call it either the Randy Rhodes version or the Metal Health version of the group, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to that, it did not, it, Kevin did not perform with a Quiet Riot until we performed as Quiet Riot. The week 
of uh, March 1983 when right. Metal Health was released. Before that, it was always Dubrow. And right before Randy passed away, he and I, we had gone over to see Kevin as Dubrow performing. And he asked Randy and me for our blessings to name what he was going to be working on in the future if whenever there was a record to name it to name the band rename it quiet riot and of course you know we say yeah of course you know go ahead you know and uh i really don't know how randy completely felt about it but he did give kevin his blessings on it and uh because we never really talked much about it all i know is that kevin asked because kevin told me separately he says yeah i just spoke with randy and he's you know asking him about renaming the band my band quiet ryan and he says okay and i say oh yeah of course if it's okay with randy of course it's okay with me and that was it so i get a call and i and i wrote about it in the book mm-hmm. i i get a call from from kevin i was uh, this during my break what i i think it was my last break from being with ozzy uh to come in and record a uh a uh, thunderbird which is a song that i that when i was a member of dubrow kevin wrote that song so i was the first bass player to play it and uh, then i left the band and many other bass players kept playing with dubrow performing that song thunderbird so kevin called me up and say listen uh i'm gonna i'm in the studio we're doing some some demos uh, for hopefully we can get a record deal and uh can you come over and and play in thunderbird i say of course you know that was as a tribute he kevin had written that song when randy left choir ride to join ozzy he was still alive when that song was written now he wants to record that song as a tribute to randy you know and after he passed away and uh, I went in, and since I already have played the song, we went over a couple of times. Okay, we got it. And in that session, there was a few hours left. So I, uh, they skip, uh, the producer, Spencer Proffer, and the guys in the band, Frankie, Carlos, and Kevin, asked me, do you remember Slick Black Cadillac, which is the only song that, w- that wound up on Metal Health Record from the Randy days. But Kevin wrote it by himself, right? And so we cut Slick Black Cadillac and a couple of other songs from Dubrow that wound up on Metal Health. So by the time I left the session, I had recorded at least four songs, maybe even five. I can't really recall exactly. And uh, so my way out, I hear this Kevin and Frankie on the side of the hallway outside of the studio. They're talking about uh that Spencer Proffer wanted them to record this song that turned out to be Colin Field and Noise that they really didn't want on the record. So in comes Tony Cavazzo, Carlos's brother. Carlos's brother. Yeah, to lay down the bass for Common Field and Noise. So I I watched them because Frankie was supposed to sabotage the song playing bad <laughs> yeah and, yeah and frankie can't play bad it's impossible you know <laughs> and so it was actually done in one take i watched that so i said okay so i went 
I went to New York a couple of days later after that session to start working on the Speak of the Devil live record, the Black Sabbath re-recordings. But by the joy of playing outside of Ozzy with Frankie and Carlos and Kevin in the studio kept lingering, you know, and it was because, listen, we were all really damaged after Randy Rose passed away, without a doubt. I mean, I did not leave one, one, one of the biggest bands in the world to join the complete unknown, which was Quiet Riot. Nobody won, everybody thought that what we were doing was dinosaur music. They had no idea, you know. Uh, nobody even wanted to manage the band. We had to, to beg our old manager to come out of retirement to like, okay, okay, I'll do it because I got nothing better to do, <laughs> you know? And it, it, was, it was just, you know, but, but we, we just, you know, we had perseverance and we believed in what we were doing. At least we thought we were gonna sell 50,000 records, you know, so. That was a, that was a low estimate. <laughs> yeah, but at least we thought, you know, we get 50,000 records, maybe we'll get another option to record another record and just right. build it. That's the way it was done back then. Yeah. You just build, build the band record by record, you know? And uh, so, so when, when I, when, when I went in to do speak of the devil, you know, that, that sadness of playing with Ozzy and, and, and Tommy without Randy, it was still there. It was, it was like, you could it just didn't feel it. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's when I decided this, you know what? I got to get the joy of playing back in my life again. And, and, you know, at least even as long as I can just, you know, make a living. So I'm not a starving musician playing, getting away from, from that shadow of, of Randy and, and Ozzy. Because to be honest with you, I play with both in Quiet Riot with Randy and in Ozzy with Randy. And there's no difference about the shadow that Randy cast from Ozzy to Quiet Riot. It was, Quiet Riot was just a, a local guitar player. With Ozzy, it's a legend. Yeah. That's, that's the Randy that I, that I recall. That's the Randy that I experienced every single night for two tours, you know, Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman tour. And so renaming the band Quiet Riot without Randy, it was like, it was, I knew it was not the same band. It was a name, a brand. It could have been called anything, you know, and it was still had had that record with those songs, you know, and it had that band. It was a great band. It was the right band at the right time, you know, with the right circumstances, MTV and the yeah. US Festival and, and all of that that was going on. So uh, did you expect when you guys were done with the record? I mean, obviously, hopes are high, but it, is there any way to prepare for the way that thing blew up? It was not, it did not blow up. It was a very it was long slow. It was fuse. A, like a crescendo. There was a fuse, very long, a mile long fuse. Yeah. That was lit and the fire only as the, as the fuse got shorter, do you actually saw the bomb. At the end, connected to it, that would eventually explode. Yeah. But that fuse, when it first got lit, it was like, okay, well, 
<laughs> you know, uh, so, well, we didn't even think about it. What we did is we just went out there and played. There was no master plan. We had a record. We like it. We like these songs. We like we like us. We were dri- we started out in a station wagon, then we went to an RV driving ourselves around. We like each other. We're having a great time doing this. Let's let's do it again tomorrow. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Was there any okay? So while the fuse is burning mm-hmm. and getting closer to the bomb, mm-hmm. were there? What were you thinking? Uh, because obviously you you had played in in an ultimate situation. Yes. The other three guys yes. had hadn't gotten there yet. Well, Frank was there somewhat? Yeah, but not, somewhat. But not but, at the level of Ozzy. Yeah. Right. Was there anything? Was there any yeah. voice in your head making you second guess yourself? No, I'm not. I, I wasn't even guessing. Oh, okay. I had just remembered. I was in Ozzy '81, '82. '82, I left Ozzy, but I joined Quiet Riot, so it was kind of like, and and in the same week that I recorded half of Metal Health record, I recorded Speak of the Devil. So it was like. I kept going, you know, at that level. Well, Aussie level and then Choir Riot, you know, but got up to that level, you know, eventually. Uh, the ride to the top looks exactly the same. This it's the same, it's it's the same landscape. No yeah. matter which band, it's just no the matter same landscape. It's it's the same landscape. The certain events that have to occur to get you to the top and not until we actually got on mtv with come and feel the noise that by that time we were touring with iron maiden and we were opening up for them and we were at the madison square garden who i just played with ozzy about a year before Mm -hmm. headlining with ozzy but this time is mtv and in mtv in those days everybody knew you everybody knew your face because what happened was there were all of a sudden there's tv screens in every store storefronts mm-hmm. tv screens record stores tv screens and they were airing mtv, MTV yeah. yeah to promote the product that they were selling in the stores so everybody multicultural uh people of all ethnicities knowing who you are in new york city cop drivers hey quiet riot feel the noise you know whatever <laughs> you're going like I've, I've never experienced this before this is really weird because it's not supposed to happen right people are not supposed to care you're in new york city in yeah. 1983 right. you know so they, so they, there yeah. so there really was like uh, could you retain some anonymity even with ozzy um, oh yeah oh yeah yeah are you kidding and then, and then mtv just completely blew that facade away huh well but but it was not a a a, a, a negative it was like no. an appreciation basically yeah. right you know we, we weren't getting mod it was kind of like hey yeah kind of like hey you know yeah. it was it was that that's when i knew okay hold on this is not only it i've seen this this trip, but this is so this weird. This is going somewhere else. Yeah. This is bizarre. And it's just not just us. It was like this is the beginning of something else. It took it took Sergeant Pepper decades to go gold. 
and platinum. It took us basically. What, like seven you know, months? Yeah, or less than that. Oh no, yeah. we, we, we went to number one, let's say April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November. Eight months to go to number one. At oh, a time when your competition was Thriller and Synchronicity, two of the biggest records, especially Thriller. Oh you know, yeah. That's your competition. And we have been on number two for a long time. And we that's were just... doing in-store signings every day. So store managers would say, hey, you guys are not number one yet. I've been reporting you guys as number one sales in our store. So there was some kind of political thing going on, you know. Yeah. Not like nowadays you have SoundScan. Well, right. not that it matters because now it's all about Spotify. <laughs> right. Yeah. Making yeah. making uh, fractions of a penny yeah. for every play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at least you're making something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what was yeah. what was life like uh, when you guys hit that pinnacle? So now you're doing these arena tours yeah. and you're the headliner. Yeah, we didn't start headlining until New Year's Eve 1983 to 84 at Cobo Hall. And, wow. you know, you're so in it. You're just busy. You're just busy, you know, making sure that what you're doing today it's is as good or better than what you did yesterday, you know, because as right. your, your status climbs, your responsibility come, climbs along with it. That's what yeah. what, what an amazing story. Yeah, it just, I, it, right. Yeah. Uh, nothing like it, and you guys broke down so many barriers for that music to more of that music to permeate in into the top mm -hmm. 10 it's mm -hmm. i'm sure i'm sure looking back on it it's just as unbelievable as it was at the time you've been in so many bands i mean your your given name is well yes that's one thing i wanted to do at the beginning yeah right, can yeah. you share can you share with us your, your... yeah yeah it's all i can say it's too long for an email address that's... <laughs> 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 it's maybe longer than all the bands you've been in. <laughs> That's right. Oh, uh, like, yeah. And, and I, I actually have my original copy of my birth certificate, and all my names are actually in there. And, and it's great because, of course, it's 1950. So it's kind of like a mimeograph, like a carbon copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. You know? And then somebody with really, I guess they would find people with excellent penmanship in the office. <laughs> To do yeah. this, you know. Yeah. And, and then they and then they're looking at what yours is and they're wow, I've got my work cut out for me. Yeah, this is <laughs> that's right. It's like I'm gonna have to take a lunch break after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that was very traditional in the uh, in the Latin community. You yeah. Know, to have like your name after your middle name was usually the saint's day that you were born, because each day had a saint in the calendar, mm -hmm. you know. And so mine happened to be Maximo Maximilian. Maximiliano, basically. And uh, then, you know, I was first born, so I was named after my dad. So I'm actually third generation Rudolf, Rodolfo. And then my father's last name, Sarzo. And then my mom's last name, Lavier, because my, my dad is, uh, is um, Asturia, Asturiano, which is a certain section of Northern Spain. And then my mom is French. And then we go down down the line again. You flip flop, you know. Yeah. Salso, uh, La Vieja Grande, Rui, 
Greece, Paris, Chaumont, and you know, all this stuff. <laughs> so it's 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 traditional. I don't think they do it yeah. anymore. You know? Yeah, but that's it's very it's, it's very cool. My middle name is Todd. Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a family middle name yeah, Essex. He, so yeah, yeah. I got rid of my middle name except Frankie. Who always call me by my middle name. Oh, Max. Max. Yeah. Max. Yeah. 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 Well, that's He's the cool. only person that called me by by Max. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've obviously covered a lot of ground, um, but I also wanted to talk to you about, obviously the Beatles were formative for you. Who were some of the other bands in that, in your later teen years that, that you just absolutely had, had to listen to? Everybody, everybody. No, and I'm serious. Everybody. I, I, there were no barriers for young Rudy Sarzo. Well, they're nope. on the Aussie tour bus listening to Lee Rittenauer. So. <laughs> Lee Rittenauer and, and Gino Vanelli. Oh uh, yeah. Nightwalker yeah. had just come out and that I kept, you know, listening to that in my Walkman. You know. Uh, uh, thank thank you know. thank God, thank God for the Walkman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody, oh my God, Mantovani, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Glenn Miller, uh, oh my God. Yeah. One time I was, again, you know, I, I didn't have any money and it's my, my, my dad's birthday. And so I figure, how about if I get him a present that I can actually, I, I can actually use. Because they, I learned that from them. Yeah, yeah. stuff that both of you know. Yeah, really you and your brother can use. Yeah, so I figured, okay, so I got my dad uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders' greatest hits. Awesome. Yeah, now that that wasn't the bad part. The bad part is that the cover. Remember, Paul Revere and the Raiders they used to wear tights. Oh yeah, so it was like all these guys in tights, and my dad's <laughs> going. What is this? <laughs> Looking at the cover. <laughs> but he just threw it away. Little did you know that, uh, Dad, this is a preview of what I'm going to be wearing in the 80s. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what I'm going to be wearing. Yeah. <laughs> but they, oh, yeah. I, I, I remember uh, watching my first football game on TV at home. And my mom goes, what are they doing? Why does he have his hands in between that guy's legs? <laughs> oh, you can't watch that anymore. That's it. It's prohibited. No football. What? You know, I mean, she didn't even call it football. It was like, that's it. You change the channel with a clicker. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. actually a clicker that went yeah. click, click, <laughs> click, click. <laughs> so music today, how, how do you feel about the, the music industry? today going through all of the ebbs and flows that you've been through um you know there's there's i'm being a musician myself obviously not a playing or touring musician but you know it's great that the field has been leveled to the degree that you can record i mean if you've if you've got the love for it you can record anything you want at home and um yeah. what do you think about the state of the of the music business today Oh boy, how much time do we have? Well, 
<laughs> it's a loaded <laughs> question for sure. Yeah, because, because my battery's about to run out <laughs> on my iPhone. Uh, oh no. Uh, huh. That's a. It's a long, long, long uh, answer because it would be basically breaking down the whole the whole history of uh, of the music industry that does not exist anymore, but, but there's certain pros and cons to it now. And uh, so basically, if I was going to put it in a nutshell, it would be what I miss is the contributions from mentors such as artist relations, personnel from record companies, uh, producers, engineers that would actually take a brand new band, a diamond in the rough, and turn them into a world-class artist mm -hmm. by bringing in their experiences from working with other artists that became world-class artists. You know, So you don't really have that much anymore. As a matter of fact, record companies, in essence, the record companies that really take a, take a risk, not the same type of risk that the that let's say Epic would take or Columbia or Warner Brothers used to take, we're talking about thousands of dollars. I mean, now it's kind of like minimum is that the artists will actually self-produce an album, which means no producer working with you on it. So only guys like myself who've been around for a long time actually can say, well, when I work with such and such producer, let me take some of that knowledge and apply it to what we're doing now. Okay, so that's good. You have that reference. But the younger generation has no reference whatsoever. Yeah. They yeah. don't. They, they don't. And uh, so that's missing. Uh, record company, artist relations, knowing what the record needs. It's not just the producer. For example, when, when I was with Whitesnake, we had uh, John Kalatner as our executive producer, artist relation from, uh, from, from Geffen. Now, these, these, these uh, artist relations executives, they got paid on points on the record. On so the record. it was in their benefit, to, the to more records the, they sell. Yeah, to do the best thing they can for the sales. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and that's an incredible incentive. You know, yeah. because if they if they if they say okay, as an artist relation, I'm going to release five records in a year. You know, and if they say oh, if I am going to pick you, the artist, as one of the five, that says a lot about you because he could have gone with a hundred other choices. You know, so now he's going to work with you, and you better listen to what he's got to say, because if you don't, then he's going to, like I've seen this happen where the artist relation person says, you know what, what's going on in here is very, I, I, I can work with you guys. I'm gonna work with somebody else. And they go to that studio and the difference in quintuple platinum to maybe gold mm, is huge. huge. It's huge because you were yeah. not there to listen to what this artist relation person had to say that could have made your next record, just like the previous record, a success. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's another thing that has always been fascinating to me. The producers who 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 were the mm -hmm. best who are the best producers that you've uh, with? well, in, in a way, I got to say uh, Spencer. Spencer ha ha had a vision. Uh, 
a lot a lot could be said about his business tactics but i'm going to leave that alone because <laughs> when when because it's business look nobody put a gun to our head and say sign this this record deal it was yeah. signed period okay so moving on from that as a producer of a record and he had a really great engineer working with us, uh, Dwayne Barron. And, and Dwayne was very responsible for getting sound. But of course, it was his label, Spencer Proffer's label, his studio, his everything, right? Mm -hmm. So he had final say on things. And he had a very clear vision of what he thought was going to sell. Because these are businessmen. Right. You know, they're in the business not because they want to hang out with you. you no, know, they're in the business because they want to be successful. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So... So Spencer was really good at that. Uh, let's say with, I didn't get to work in, in the studio with, with Ozzy, but I did some live recordings, especially Speak of the Devil with Max Norman, who had mm -hmm. been already the producer in uh, For Diary and Blizzard. I work uh, with Whitesnake with Mike Plink. We had Bruce Fairburn come, come down and he gave us some observations of what we were doing. And he really gave me some really good tips musically about what my contributions were to the songs and make me look at the songs a little bit different. And then I got into recording with Mike Klink as the producer. So, yeah. Slip of the Tongue was the first Whitesnake album you recorded, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, it was, it was the only one that I recorded. Out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. because after that, the, uh, the band broke up for, right. for a few years. Yeah. And, uh, and then what, we had... Uh, what an amazing group of guys to record oh, with. Yeah, I uh, know. It's incredible. And also there's a live record and it's absolutely live. I mean, there's no overdubs because it's the record from us at Dunnington performing live. And it's the same record as the, the live BBC feed that went to the radio stations. Was it's, that, it's, was that live for the 87 album or was that live for slip of the tongue? Well, it was the, the slip of the tongue tour in oh, 1990. Okay. okay. Yeah. So right, yeah. the bulk of the material is, you know, from Slip of the Tongue and 87 too, because yeah. it was a big record. Um, so let's say my clink on that. Um, and then with, uh, right, right after that, I started working with, with other, let's say, well, you know, basically I did my, the bulk of my recordings in the studio dur during the 80s. You yeah, I've worked with other producers, but they've been on different projects. I I did some records with Bob Kulik. Um, uh, re rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. My favorite record I did with him was D D Snyder. It's called D Does Broadway. And <laughs> have you heard it? I I have. Yeah, yeah. Hey, he's incredible. He's incredible, man. He he can sing anything. He sure can, and. I got to tell you, just because it was outside of the comfort zone for everybody, especially D, to actually take take uh, standards, uh, Broadway standards, and make them metal, and I was actually that was actually Bob. Bob could do that. As a matter yeah. of fact, uh, his uh, his expertise was taking songs that were not necessarily heavy metal and making them metal. He, yeah. he released a a, a a Michael Jackson metal record. Chris, metal Christmas with Dio, yeah. you know, um, things like that. So, you know, that's always, that, that, that was always very, very interesting to, to work with him because you knew that it was not going to be exactly cookie cutter, a, re a recreation of the original.
Oh, of course not. Yeah. What was it? What was it like when the industry in '90 kind of shifted to this grunge mm-hmm. out of metal? What was it like for you guys? Um, for me, it, it, it was. It was. I I did not understand it, and because by that time, see, in, right before we finished the uh, the White Snake Salute of the Tongue tour, David announced to the band months before that he was going to take a break and probably, you know, that was going to be the end, the end of the band as we knew it. So I, I put together my own band, which actually had on guitar, a very young, still a teenager, 19 years old, John five, it was 1990. And, uh, and the drummer from vintage trouble, uh, Richard Danielson and a couple of other guys. And my head was so stuck into what I had been doing. 80s arena rock, right? We got signed. We got signed to Giant Records, Irving Azov. And uh, we had Trudy Green, which was White Snake's manager, HK manager, managing us. And, uh, you know, it, it, then Nirvana happened. And it was like, I don't know how to do this. Because I was listening to Nirvana. I wasn't really paying that much attention to, let's say, Soundgarden. Because if I would have listened to Soundgarden, even though you know I was aware <laughs> of you know Temple of the Dog and and so right. on, but it didn't dawn on me. It says, "Wait a minute, these guys are playing Black Sabbath." Yeah, absolutely. I just did that. <laughs> Why didn't I just, you know, get a bunch of young guys that can play Black Sabbath and you know grunge themes? And I I've done this before. You yeah, know, absolutely. I, I know. But no, I, my, my head was so deep into into uh, arena rock, you know, what is known as hair, hair metal, that I just kind of like, I blew it off and say, okay, I, I did quit. I did quit for, for, uh, for a couple of years. And then I got back playing with Choir Riot in 1997. I did do one record with, uh, with Adrian Vandenberg, Tommy Aldrich and Run Young from Little Caesar mm-hmm. called, called Manic Eden. Yep. And it was um, released in Japan and France. The French oh. loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, not to stay on the grunge thing too long, but I kind of feel having obviously years to listen and for other things to come and make their way into your brain and your heart listening back now it's not such a dividing line between what nirvana was doing and what you guys were doing before them but at the time it seemed like it was totally yeah. different it was more marketing difference. yeah yeah it was it, it was the consciousness the consciousness and, and to me this is where it stems from uh mtv before they started going down the uh, reality tv path Ugh. was you know was videos right and then vh yeah. one you know stuff like that uh they have been running a campaign to prevent spreading aids with with the teens and it was like how can we do this if we keep playing all these rock videos with video vixens yep. you know it's confusing the message here you know and so they found they found a way how to separate it. And for example, rock videos, no women, no sexuality, 
but mm -hmm. urban gangster, gangster rap videos, that's where you found the sexuality. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but absolutely. But, but no guitars. Mm -mm. Huh. Yeah. yeah. What did you think of that when <laughs> rap started to hit? Well, what can I do? Yeah, <laughs> it's a fact. It's like, okay, I know what they're doing, and I, you know, what am I gonna do? Yeah, you know. Uh, well, I mean, it's it. Even I, I I'm gonna be 47 next year, um, and You're just a baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, everything that you guys w were doing was my life when I was a teenager at the time that I met you, which it had to be, it had to be 90 when you guys were on tour for slip of the tongue. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. Um, and it wasn't, it, it was just an in-store. You were doing an in-store for your mm -hmm. new base because you also yeah. signed, mm -hmm. signed a, a printout of that. And I've got a scan yeah. of that, that I'll share with you too. Yeah. Yeah. The but, um, base. Yeah. yeah. But it was, it was everything. I mean, to me. And then when that dividing line came, I mean, I, I feel like I was just as confused as all of you guys were because I was looking around going, what am I, what am I going to listen to now? What's going to happen to all these bands? Because I've gone to more shows than I can yeah. even count. Yeah. It's, you know, to my generation, everything about rock and roll dating back to Elvis had to do with sex, sexuality, right? For the very, very, very first time, sexuality was removed out of rock and roll. Yep. because of the AIDS epidemic. Mm -hmm. I couldn't, ha my generation could not wrap their heads around that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, that's wild to even think about. I mean, yeah. I, I don't even think about that being a big pivotal thing, but you were in the trenches. You saw it firsthand. Yeah. And even today, even today, to be politically correct oh. and the Me Too yeah. generation. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty much still like that, yep. you know, for, for, uh, for men. Right. And have to like, okay, we can't get away with the stuff that we used to get away with. Right. You know, lyrically, lyrically in songs, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. and so it, it's, you know, it's, it's been a game changer, but then again, you know, life progresses and it grows and you just adapt, simulate Absolutely. and move on and, and listen, become aware of your surroundings, you know, yeah. and yeah. if you, and if you're going to survive it by adapting and assimilating, you're going to be better off than just uh, becoming a victim of it. Yeah. I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about, um, where people can hear your radio show or, oh, yeah. or anything else that you'd like to share with people, because we'll also include that on our social media. Yeah, mainly the radio show. It's uh, Six Degrees of Sarzo, a Monsters of Rock Radio. We have over 100 million subscribers worldwide. And um, mostly it airs. Uh, our anchor date is uh, 4 p.m. Pacific, Pacific time on Sundays. Okay. And what you can do is it's a free uh, Dash app. Okay. Download and it's part of the Dash network. All the all this it's got over 80 stations. It's a radio show. And since it's ad-free and subscription-free, uh, there's no download. Cool. It's streaming. 
live yeah. streaming. Oh, so you have to get the stream. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to listen to the stream because we, uh, it, it's a four hour show of conversation and music related to the guest. Great. That's awesome. What's your favorite guest you've had on the show? Oh, I've had so many. Um, you've got to, you got to just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're all very different. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes the bigger the name, you have to work a little bit harder. Sometimes, I mean, let's say somebody like D Snyder, I just have to say, "Hey, D, how you doing?" Yeah, you, you <laughs> say, "How you doing?" and you let him go. <laughs> and, and I have a show. Okay. Well, I can't. I cannot thank you enough for giving us the time that you've given us. It's it's just been a pleasure to, to share this Absolutely. time with you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for listening and um, and for all the really uh, excellent questions and themes, you know, things that I don't get to talk about a whole lot in podcasts. Yeah, it's it, it it's important to me. I mean, like I said, as, as we're going on, it's the stories and yes. it's the things, you know, the things that fill people's hearts that make mm -hmm. listening to th these things mm -hmm. interesting. And it, it's just been, it's been a wonderful experience and, and we can't thank you enough. So thank you so much, Rudy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rudy. Thanks, Rudy.